mitochondria actually have a second role that is just as important as their role in, in, as energy generators, and that is as cell defenders. Even something like a physical injury, that can cause enough inflammation in the body to create this sickness behavior. You can train yourself to be calm and resilient in the state of physiological stress. While insulin is one of many things that are required for fat gain, it is not the thing that regulates body fat. Welcome to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast, where we meet the world's top experts to explore the secrets of health, mindset, longevity, and so much more. Are you ready to take charge of your existence and biohack your life? This show is for you. Please keep in mind, we're not dispensing medical advice and are not responsible for any outcomes you may experience from implementing the tactics lying herein. Are you ready? Let's do this. Welcome back to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. Friends, I so thoroughly enjoyed today's episode. Ari Witten is a wonder. I'd been wanting to interview Ari for so long, ever since he had his book on the benefits of red light therapy. His new book, Eat for Energy, is so incredible. And we got into some really nuanced topics, maybe a little bit of controversy when it comes to things like multivitamins and vitamin supplementations. We discussed the very interesting dual role of the mitochondria and what that means for you, low-carb myths, and so much more. I cannot wait to hear what you guys think of today's episode. Let me know what you think in the Facebook group. And when you do so, you can enter to win something from me. Just find the pinned announcement post in the Facebook group about this episode. It's at the very top of the Facebook group. Comment something you learned or something that resonated with you to enter to win something that I love that usually ends up being a full-size beauty counter product. You could also enter to win on my Instagram. Find the Friday announcement post there. And again, comment to enter to win something that I love. These show notes for today's episode will be at melanieavalon.com slash Ari Witten, A-R-I-W-H-I-T-T-E-N. Those show notes will have a full transcript, so definitely check that out. If you are enjoying the show, there's one incredible, amazing thing you can do to support it, and that's by subscribing in iTunes and writing an iTunes review. It helps so much more than most people realize, so thank you so much in advance for that. I have a very exciting announcement, friends. I have officially launched a TikTok channel. I've been on Instagram for a while, but it is time for TikTok. And with the channel, I'm going to be posting daily, very high quality, awesome biohacking content, tips and tricks, things from my life. And I really want to bring the glam to biohacking because I feel like biohacking can be very male centric or focused on a certain type of person. And I just want to break that stereotype and bring all the sparkles. So please join me there. My handle is Melanie Avalon Official. Please let me know what you'd like to see from me, what you think of the content. I do feel pretty shy about it. So please join me so that we can be friends and just go on the most epic biohacking adventure. Okay, friends, spirulina update. It is still coming. I know it's been taking a while. It's just because I want to make the most ideal spirulina tablets on the market, ones that are tested for purity and potency and to be free of all pesticides and just the highest quality. So we've got that spirulina source. It tastes awesome. The issue we're experiencing is that in order to make it into tablets, it requires another ingredient. If you're currently taking spirulina tablets and they say they are one ingredient, they are not one ingredient. There is something in there that is helping to keep that structure. So we're trying to figure out which route to go with this. It's really fun because I keep trying different samples. I think I know which one I like the most, but we'll see which one I end up picking. 
Either way, I really love the taste of our spirulina. It doesn't taste fishy or LGE, and I really experienced the benefits. So stay tuned for that. In the meantime, you can get my other Avalon X supplements at avalonx.us. Friends, have you jumped on the serapeptase bandwagon yet? That's what I launched with, and to this day, it continues to be my most favorite supplement ever. It's a proteolytic enzyme created by the Japanese silkworm. When you take it in the fasted state, it actually breaks down non-living problematic proteins in your body, so it can help address an array of issues. Like I said, it will clear your sinuses, calm inflammation, It may help reduce cholesterol. Studies have shown it can break down amyloid plaque. It can help alleviate pain and so much more. I take it daily. It is one of the most important supplements in my arsenal. This is the new year. Start it off right. Get some serapeptase. You can get 10% off with the coupon code Melanie Avalon, as well as a 20% off code when you text Avalon X to 877-861-8318. That's Avalon X to 877-861-8318. Those codes will also work with my fantastic partner, MD Logic Health. For that, go to melanieavalon.com slash mdlogic. And of course, all of my supplements I formulated to be the very best on the market. They're tested multiple times for heavy metals and mold. They're free of all common allergens as well as problematic fillers, which goes back to that whole spirulina formulation issue I was talking about. They come in glass bottles to help prevent leaching of plastics into ourselves and the environment. And we even use the minimal amount of stickiness required for the labels to help with our environmental impact. To get these fantastic products, go to avalonx.us and definitely get on my email list so that you don't miss the Spirulina launch special. For that, go to avalonx.us slash email list. Another resource for you guys If you struggle with food sensitivities like I do, you have got to get my app, Food Sense Guide. It's a comprehensive catalog of over 300 foods for 11 potentially problematic compounds. These include things you may be reacting to, like gluten, lectins, FODMAPs, histamine, oxalates, sulfites, thiols, whether or not something is a nightshade, and so much more. It even includes autoimmune paleo AIP status. You can learn about the compounds, create your own list to share and print, and finally take charge of your food sensitivities. It is a top Apple app, often in the top 10 for the Apple food and drinks charts. And friends, get it now because I'm going to be updating it to a subscription basis soon. So you definitely want to get grandfathered in for life at one super low price. With the subscriptions, by the way, I'm going to be implementing some pretty cool features. So I need to do subscriptions to help support that. So like I said, get it now before we change to subscriptions. You can get it at melanieavalon.com slash foodsenseguide. And one more thing before we jump in. Did you know there are over a thousand compounds found in conventional skincare and makeup in the U.S. that have been banned in Europe due to their toxicity? If you are using conventional skincare and makeup, you are directly putting into your bloodstream toxic compounds, including obesogens, which can literally cause your body to store and gain weight. So if your diet's not working, you might want to think about what's happening with your skincare and makeup, as well as carcinogens linked to cancer. I'm not making this up. And just endocrine disruptors in general, which mess with our hormones. Thankfully, there's an easy solution to this. There's a company called Beauty Counter and they were founded on a mission to change this. Every single ingredient is extensively tested to be safe for your skin so you can truly feel good about what you put on and their products really work. I am obsessed with their overnight resurfacing peel, their vitamin C serum, they have shampoo and conditioner, skincare lines for every skin type, 
and incredible makeup. It's so amazing that Tina Fey actually wore all beauty counter makeup when she hosted the Golden Globes. So yes, it is high definition camera ready. You can shop with me at beautycounter.com slash Melanie Avalon and use the coupon code clean for all 20 to get 20% off site-wide. You can get the latest updates from me, specials, sales, samples, and so much more on my email list. That's at melanieavalon.com slash clean beauty. And you can join me in my Facebook group, Clean Beauty and Safe Skincare with Melanie Avalon. People share product reviews and their experiences. And I do a giveaway every single week in that group as well. And lastly, if you're thinking of making clean beauty and safe skincare a part of your future, like I have, I definitely recommend becoming a band of beauty member. It's sort of like the Amazon Prime for clean beauty. You get 10 percent back in product credit, free shipping on qualifying orders, and a welcome gift that is worth way more than the price of the year-long membership. It is totally completely worth it. And I'll put all this information in the show notes. An important announcement, friends. My EMF blocking products are coming. Make sure you don't miss the launch special. For that, get on my email list at melanieavalon.com slash EMF email list. EMFs are actually classified by the IARC as a group 2B, possibly carcinogenic to humans. These are such a problem. We are exposed to them through our Wi-Fi, our cell phones, our AirPods, And they are linked to so many health issues, including anxiety, migraines, headaches, even fertility issues. This is such a problem. Thankfully, you can address your EMF exposure. I'm going to help with that with my Avalon X EMF blocking product line. So again, get on my email list at melanieavalon.com slash EMF email list to check that out. All right, without further ado, please enjoy this wonderful conversation with Ari Witten. Hi friends, welcome back to the show. I am so incredibly excited about the conversation that I am about to have. I have been wanting to have this conversation for probably about two and a half years now. Ever since I launched this show, the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast, at the very beginning, I would get requests for guests. And there's a name that has been coming up from the very beginning, I promise you. And that is Ari Witten. And he wrote a book called The Ultimate Guide to Red Light Therapy. And that's why a ton of my audience was begging for an interview with him. And so I was really hoping that it could manifest. And then it came to me sort of recently, or probably a little bit a while ago now. But Ari has a new book called Eat for Energy, How to Beat Fatigue, Supercharge Your Mitochondria, and Unlock All-Day Energy. So it's funny because I get a lot of requests on this show. And when the email came in from Ari's either agent or publicist or whoever it was, I was just like, yes, please book him right now. And then I read the book and it was absolutely incredible about one of my favorite topics, of course, energy production and the mitochondria. And it's extremely comprehensive. It goes into what causes fatigue on the cellular level and then the dietary and lifestyle choices for that. And then an overwhelmingly comprehensive guide to supplements related to energy production. It's really a valuable resource. It's one of those books that listeners and friends, you just have to get because there's so much information in there and it's a, it would be a really good reference book, I think, in addition to an amazing read the first time around. So definitely get that. I have, we were talking before this about just how many questions and things we could talk about, but I am just so excited. So Ari, thank you so much for being here. Thanks so much for having me, Melanie. It's an absolute pleasure. 
I do think most of my listeners are pretty familiar with your work, but for those who are not, you do have a Bachelor of Science from San Diego State University in kinesiology. You have two advanced certifications from the National Academy of Sports Medicine as a corrective exercise specialist and a performance enhancement specialist. And I'm curious because I know sometimes the bios aren't that updated. Was it still recently that you completed your PhD in clinical psychology? Yeah, well, yeah. So there's a long story. I, I've done a, a whole lot of years of graduate school without without any fancy letters after my last name to show for it. I was in medical school for a couple of years. I left medical school because I hated the allopathic paradigm. I just couldn't take it anymore. It was making me sick to be in a hospital setting, you know, watching people with diabetes and heart disease, you know, just prescribed one drug after another, after another on, on 12, 15, 18 different prescription drugs being taught nothing about nutrition and lifestyle, about the actual causes of their condition. I've been studying nutrition and lifestyle since I was a, a little kid, since I was 12 years old. And, you know, at a certain point, I just couldn't stomach being in that environment anymore, made the decision to leave. And then I went, I, I thought I'd do a PhD program in clinical psychology. I did all three years of my coursework for that and then decided ultimately I didn't really want to be a psychologist either. And part of there's a, there's a number of aspects of that. One of which is the paradigm there was also kind of disturbing to me because you're dealing with mental health issues and there is absolutely no discussion again of nutrition and lifestyle factors. And there's a large body of evidence that we have on how nutrition and lifestyle ties into mental health and brain health that simply isn't discussed at all when you're doing a training in psychology or psychiatry for that matter. And then I started to realize, okay, if I go, if I continue to go down this path, if I go complete my PhD at, at, at what I I did all the, the three years of coursework. Basically, what I needed to do was a dissertation and internship hours. And if I do that, and if I go pursue licensure, if I jump through all these hoops, then at the end of getting my licensure to practice, it has actually, not only does it, is it not really a boon for me, but it actually creates a limitation for me because now if I try to integrate the nutrition lifestyle piece into what I'm doing, it's considered practicing outside of the scope of what I'm licensed to do. And, and therefore they can revoke my licensure if I do that. So it, it's this very sort of counterintuitive paradoxical thing where I'm actually more free to do what I want to do by not having that licensure than by having it. And then I'm actually in, in the next few weeks about to wrap up a master's degree in human nutrition and functional medicine. Oh, wow. Congratulations. In advance. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate it. Well, knock on wood, but I'm sure you'll be, I'm sure you'll get that. Uh, where are you studying that? The University of Western States. It's the only school that offers that, that degree program with, you know, a master's in, in functional medicine and human nutrition. Very cool. So when you do get that credential, are you still going to keep doing what you're doing now or, or will that change what you're like actually doing job wise? No, I'll carry on doing what I'm doing now. To, to be honest, it's largely just two things. It's to it's because there is a segment of the population that won't listen to anything you have to say unless they see some kind of impressive formal credential and, you know, written on your book or something like that. So I wanted that just to appease those people so that they'll, it'll at least open the, oh, their mind to considering what I have to say for, for those kinds of people who think that way. 
And then the second thing is if I'm going to go do something like that to, to get a credential like that, I might as well learn something along the way. And the program is very good. It has really excellent professors in a variety of, of different specialties. Gut health in particular, the, the professor for that course is absolutely world-class. So I, I, I figure if I'm going to do a program to get a credential, I want to learn some stuff along the way. And, and I've learned some, some good stuff in some areas that were not within my wheelhouse previously. Well, that is super amazing. And actually, this is sort of a random tangent to start on, but just talking about the psychology aspect of it. So yesterday I was watching a documentary. Have you seen Unrest? It's a 2017 documentary about people with, okay, <laughs> here we go. How do you say it? Myalgic encephalomyelitis, the, the fancy word for chronic fatigue? Encephalomyelitis. It's a documentary by a woman who has that. So she has like the... I'm sure and we're going to talk about this, you know, defining what chronic fatigue is, but she has the end of it. Like she can't even move. And she made a whole documentary from her bed essentially about it. She was talking about how hysteria back in the, was it the 1800s in France and how possibly that actually related to chronic fatigue, which was something I hadn't heard before. In, in what sense was she saying that? So it was a broader picture, but it was about... In terms of the medical history aspect of it, like how certain people, and women in particular, are treated by the medical profession? Yes. So basically like women getting these medical conditions or psychological conditions and being treated like it was all in their head. and But it even linked more specifically to it in that she was saying that maybe all these things have been happening throughout history, like outbreaks and hysteria and all this was actually related to this broader picture of inciting incidents related to chronic fatigue syndrome. It was very interesting. Mm, that Yeah, that's an interesting relationship there. I mean, yeah, there, there's definitely a, a pretty ugly history around some of this in terms of the how the medical profession has treated women in some instances. Hysteria, of course, you know, sort of basically going, hey, women are these you know, very strange, illogical creatures sometimes. And, and they act in these crazy ways that we men can't understand. And maybe it's coming from their uterus. Let's cut out their uterus and see if that solves the problem. You know, so there's that. And then with chronic fatigue syndrome for a long time, and this is partly due to limitations in testing technologies for a long time, but basically you, you could run a blood test on people with chronic fatigue syndrome, and the vast majority of the time, their markers will come back perfectly normal. Based on that, a lot of these doctors concluded, hey, there's nothing actually physiologically wrong with you. This is all in your head. And so they were prescribed antidepressants and, and basically treated like hypochondriacs and, and treated like it was all psychosomatic. And that, of course, is very wrong. We now know chronic fatigue syndrome is, in fact, a very real condition. And we have sophistic sophisticated enough testing that we've established many, many different biochemical abnormalities in people with chronic fatigue syndrome. Questions about that, actually, just to get some definitions here. Clearly it has a long history, like we just discussed, of not seeming like a credible disease or condition. And you just mentioned the metabolites, which you mentioned in the book, there being like 600 or so metabolites related to chronic fatigue. So stepping back, what is it exactly? Well, you know, th this is also interesting because despite the fact that 
as I just said, we have a number of metabolites that have been linked to chronic fatigue syndrome. There is actually still no definitive test, single test that you can do that says if you, you know, if you test positive on this particular marker, or these two markers, then that means you have chronic fatigue syndrome. So it's still a diagnosis that's largely based on symptoms. And basically the symptoms are severe debilitating levels of fatigue combined with something called post-exertional malaise, which means that for a day or two or three following even brief bouts of physical activity, even maybe moderately strenuous physical activity, someone might be pretty wiped out. They might be you know, in a, an extreme amount of soreness and pain and severe fatigue and brain fog and things like that. So that symptom is to a large extent kind of diagnostic for chronic fatigue syndrome. Now, having said all that, I really don't focus specifically on chronic fatigue syndrome specifically for a couple reasons. One is there's a legal aspect to it. I don't want to talk about medical conditions because it can get me legally into hot water if it, it is if, if it's implied that I'm saying, hey, I, here's these recommendations I'm making which can treat this specific medical condition. Now so so for that reason, I take things out of the realm of chronic fatigue syndrome and talk purely about fatigue or chronic fatigue, which are not medical diagnoses, but a description of low levels of energy. The second reason, even more important than that, is that chronic fatigue syndrome really just represents the extreme end of that spectrum of how debilitated someone can become as a result of low energy levels. But this is not an on-off switch. It's not like, oh, you either have amazing high energy levels bouncing off the walls with energy like a little kid, or you're debilitated with chronic fatigue syndrome. There's a uh, hundred degrees of gray, gray areas in between those two ends of the, the extremes. And most people, most adults are, you know, somewhere in the middle, if not maybe slightly in the direction of, or moderately in the direction of chronic fatigue without necessarily meeting the diagnostic criteria of chronic fatigue syndrome and having this severe post-exertional malaise, but they have poor energy levels relative to what they had when they were in their youth. I'm glad you're talking about that because that was one of my, my big questions. So on that spectrum of fatigue levels from the beginning to the end where we might see it manifest as chronic fatigue syndrome, if we actually get down to like the mitochondria, is it the same thing happening or is it different? What's happening with the mitochondria and not being able to create energy? Yeah, it's a good question. The, the principles are the same. However, you know, there, there's, there's probably a thousand different variations on this. So for, for your listeners who haven't read the book, let me give a sort of brief explanation of what we're really talking about here. It's long been taught that the mitochondria are our cellular energy generators. They're the, the, in biology courses, they're taught about as the powerhouse of the cell. But they're really framed, you know, whether we're talking high school biology or college university level biology or medical school biology courses, 
they're really kind of taught about as, oh, they're just one of many organelles in the cell. And, you know, over here's the endoplasmic reticulum and here's some lysosomes and here's the Golgi apparatus and here's a mitochondria. And remember the mitochondria is the powerhouse of the cell. And they're, they're taught about as, first of all, just, just one of many. And in fact, they're much more important than that. They're, they're critically important for our physiology and they, they deserve a central role in the way we teach physiology, which isn't the way that physiology is taught. And that's number one. And then second, they're taught about as sort of these mindless energy generators that take in carbs and fats and just sort of pump out energy in the form of ATP, adenosine triphosphate. And of course they are energy generators, but what has not been taught in physiology and has not really been known you know, we've known about mitochondria for over a hundred years, but what has only really been uncovered in the last decade or so is that mitochondria actually have a second role that is just as important as their role in, and as energy generators. And that is as cell defenders. So it turns out our mitochondria are like the canaries in the coal mine of our body. They're these exquisitely sensitive environmental sensors that are constantly trying to assess if the body is under attack. And they're, they're asking the question, is it safe for us to produce energy? So they're taking samples of the environment constantly and going, is it safe to produce energy? Are we under attack? And if, if not, we'll produce lots of energy. If we are under attack, if we start to get signals that we are under attack, and they can sense, by the way, virtually every type of stressor or threat that you can think of, and if they start to pick up on those signals that the body is, is under threat or under attack, then they shift resources out of energy production towards cellular defense. And this process is fundamentally the most important thing to understand about human energy levels and human energy regulation. You know, when I first started going down this path of, of really focusing my life around the science of human energy production a decade ago, I didn't know where to start because nobody had put together a, a coherent synthesis a scientific framework of this topic before. So I started exploring different avenues. You know, what's the relationship of sleep and circadian rhythm to energy? Obviously, we know that if you don't sleep well, you, you're, you're tired the next day. What's going on there? What are the mechanisms? If you don't eat well, that ties into low energy levels, of course. If you don't exercise, that ties into it. If you're very overweight, maybe that makes you fatigue. What are the mechanisms? And, you know, I spent years just diving into each one of these topics, diving into the research, figuring out what are the physiological mechanisms. And at the end of all of those years, basically, I was left with a long list of 150 plus different physiological mechanisms uh, that in one way or another tie into the energy story. You know, everything from, oh, AMPK and mTOR and glucagon and insulin and blood sugar regulation. And what about testosterone and, you know, the sex hormones and thyroid hormone and growth hormone and, and cortisol and melatonin and neurotransmitters, GABA and dopamine and, and serotonin, you know, and, and all these different physiological pathways. The analogy is this, if you look at a car and you start, you know, peeling back the layers of the car, opening it up, it would be wrong to say, oh, here's the spark plug in the engine. This is the, the critical piece of that makes this car go. 
Uh, and be, it would be wrong to like open up the exhaust and look at the catalytic converter and be like, oh, this, this is the part that makes the car go. And then to look at the piston in the engine and be like, no, this is the part or the engine block. No, this is the part that makes the car go. Yet all of those pieces are important and in one way or another are indirectly involved in that car going down the street but it isn't the none of them are the thing that is actually regulating the most upstream thing that is regulating whether or not that engine is running how much gas is being pumped into it and whether or not it's driving down the road slow or fast that the thing that's doing that is the person sitting inside the car and the the, the mitochondria are that so it, it wasn't until I discovered Robert Navio's work, who runs a, a lab for mitochondrial medicine at the University of California, San Diego, and his paper, The Cell Danger Response, where he put together a, a really novel scientific framework that, that was a breakthrough in our understanding of mitochondria around this second aspect of mitochondrial function. So again, they have these two roles, energy generators and cell defenders. And the, the, they are two sides of the same coin. To the extent that they are doing one, they are turning down the dial on the other. So another way of saying that is to the extent your mitochondria are picking up on threat or danger signals in the body, they are turning down the dial on energy production. And that is fundamentally the most upstream thing, the most important regulatory mechanism of what really controls human energy levels. Hi friends. Do you want to come hang out with me and Dave Asprey and so many other guests I've had on the show? You simply must come to the 10th annual biohacking conference, May 30th through June 1st in Dallas, Texas. And of course I have a massive discount code for you guys. I went last year to the one in Orlando and it was one of the most fun times of my entire life. I met and got to hang out with so many guests that I've had on the show. I met so many of you guys. And of course, there's lots of Danger Coffee and Dave Asprey approved meals and Dry Farm Wines. And that's just the social aspect. The conference itself is mind-blowing. They have this incredible expo where they have all the biohacking supplements, all the biohacking things. You can learn about them, try samples meet the creators and founders. If you haven't tried a lot of biohacking things, it's a great chance to actually try them out in person. Things like brain tap, infrared sauna, hyperbaric oxygen chambers, and so much more. There are so many incredible speakers as well. You can hear talks from people I've had on the show like Paul Saladino, Dr. Daniel Amen, Dr. Sarah Gottfried, Dr. Mercola, Dr. Annika Becca, and that is just a few of them. I seriously had the time of my life last year, and I would love to hang out with you guys. And you can get 35% off tickets. Just go to melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference and use the coupon code BCMELANIE to get 35% off your tickets. That's melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference with the code BCMELANIE to get 35% off your tickets. This code can be used for general admission or for VIP access. Seating is limited. They do sell out. They sold out last year. So get your ticket now. And if you come, definitely let me know because I want to meet you. So hopefully see you guys in Dallas. MelanieAvalon.com slash biohacking conference with coupon code BCMelanie. Get your tickets now. I'll see you guys there. Some follow-up questions. One, how many mitochondria are in each cell? It varies wildly. On average, it's 500 to 2000, but there's some cells like in certain parts of the brain, 
in the heart, in the eye, in places like that, that can have tens of thousands per cell. Oh, wow. And do these mitochondria, if they have this dual role and they're reacting to threats and stressors, how synchronous is that reaction in mitochondria all throughout the body? And how encompassing does a threat have to be to cause feelings of fatigue? And so, for example, what I mean is if these mitochondria are in all the cells of our body, is it like there's one threat to a mitochondria in one part of our body and that's all we need? Does it communicate to other mitochondria throughout the body? And in like one cell, if it gets, quote, attacked or if it senses an issue, do all the mitochondria react the same way? Do they talk to each other? That's an excellent question. And I've never been asked that as well as you just asked it, but very smart question. So imagine, let's say, a respiratory infection as just one example where, you know, you have stuff going on, you have this virus that's infecting your sinus and nasal mucosa and in the back of your throat, maybe in your lungs, and it's causing damage and inflammation in those tissues. Okay. But that respiratory virus isn't affecting your muscles, your skeletal muscles, your, you know, back muscles and biceps and triceps and legs, right? Yet it can cause fatigue systemically to have a respiratory infection. One, one of the, the key symptoms of having a cold or a flu or COVID is of course fatigue. So, and this is also true with many other kinds of things, even a physical injury can cause something called sickness behavior. And this, this, this term sickness behavior is actually a medical term. There's lots of studies written on it where they've examined it in you know, humans and animal models and things like that. And it involves fatigue and lethargy and lack of motivation and depression and feeling crappy when you're sick. <laughs> you know, you, you don't have a lot of energy. You don't feel like you're in a good mood. You don't feel driven to get up and do lots of work. You kind of just want to lay in bed. It's that sort of feeling. It's actually called sickness behavior. Even something like a physical injury, like if you broke an arm or had a bad sprain or cut open your ankle or something like that, that can cause enough inflammation in the body to, to create this sickness behavior. To be fair, sickness behavior is also mediated a bit neurologically, not, not just at the mitochondrial level. But these are just a couple of examples of many types of examples that are kind of localized in one area. But the, to, to answer your question more directly, the mito, so the, first of all, we have things that float around in the blood and that those things go systemic. So they can be many different kinds of things. So maybe I should first ask, well, what kinds of things can the mitochondria actually sense? How are they sensing that there is a threat or a stress or damage taking place in the body? And they can sense, it, it all boils down to a few things. They can sense three or four fundamental things. One is inflammatory cytokines. So elevated levels of inflammatory cytokines from any cause will cause some degree of shutdown at the mitochondrial level. It is elevations in inflammation in the body is considered a systemic danger signal. And those inflammatory cytokines do go systemic, even if the injury is localized, like it's a respiratory infection or a physical injury in one in your leg or something like that, you get systemic elevations in the blood of inflammatory cytokines. Now, in addition to that, it can also sense oxidative stress. So elevations in oxidative stress can cause this and cellular damage itself 
will cause certain signaling molecules to be released that go systemic. Specifically, something called purinergic signaling. And these purinergic molecules are ATP and ADP. So the energy molecules themselves that are actually produced by mitochondria, they're supposed to be localized within the cell. You're not supposed to have a whole bunch of ATP or ADP floating around in your bloodstream. Yet, it's also true of um, DNA, by the way. Mitochondria have their own DNA called mitochondrial DNA. And that's also supposed to be localized in the cell. Well, it's been shown that when, when you have cellular damage that occurs, you get a leakage of ATP, ADP, and mitochondrial DNA leaking outside of the cell and getting into the bloodstream. This has even been shown in, in a field called mitochondrial psychobiology, where they subject people to psychological stress, and they show elevations in mitochondrial DNA in the bloodstream within a matter of minutes as a result of psychological stress. So those signaling molecules, it, it turns out other cells have receptors for these purinergic molecules. And when they sense the presence of these purinergic molecules where they're not supposed to be in the blood floating around the body, they interpret that as a danger signal. That's how they know throughout the rest of the body, okay, there's damage being done in the body. There's, there's a threat present. There's something here that's, that's causing tissue damage and destruction. We're under attack. And so there is a systemic communication of those of that signaling and a systemic response to it. So to clarify, there could be a stressor and then the mitochondria on purpose leak their DNA to tell the other mitochondria? Or is it just a happenstance? I don't know if it's quite if it's quite the right wording to say that they they on purpose leak their DNA and these purinergic molecules, but it is it is a byproduct of cellular damage, and the body has been wired, presumably by millions of years of evolution, or God if you prefer that, that to respond to those signaling molecules that circulate in response to cellular damage. Okay, gotcha. So like as an example, just to, to clarify the, the, the distinction in language, like if you slice open your leg from a cut, let's say an animal attacks you and it cuts you open, it's the mitochondria don't go, oh, let's release these purinergic molecules. They, they are physically damaged and ruptured and releasing them as a function of the damage, not their, their decision to release them. Okay, gotcha. And I'm really curious on the spectrum of how this could be happening, because you just mentioned, for example, that psychological stress can cause this. But then on the flip side, we could have actual injuries causing this. So the way this manifests like presumably you could have two extremes. You could have a person who actually isn't experiencing any threats, like real threats, but it's all psychological, but they're having this, well, on one end you could have that and you could have them, you know, reacting very extremely with, with the mitochondria, with the stress response. Or on the other hand, you could have somebody who's experiencing so many stressors and I'm guessing their mitochondria would, I'm just trying to make two extremes not be instigating that response? Is that possible? Like like people who seemingly get hit with all of the stressors and they're just fine. Is that because their mitochondria are not reacting in a defense mode? 
Yeah, that is a wonderful question. And I really like your questions. The answer to it is not a short one, unfortunately, but it does get into my favorite topic and I'm happy to go down this path. I love favorite topics. <laughs> so you asked me earlier how many mitochondria we have per cell. And I'll, I'll kind of circle back to that question for a moment. I gave you a simple answer to that question. Here, here's a more complex answer. We have that many mitochondria per cell, roughly on average 500 to 1,000 to 2000, excuse me, per cell. However, it is also important to understand that those mitochondria are dynamic and respond to their environment. And just as, you know, think of somebody who's like super skinny and anorexic versus a professional bodybuilder. Do they have a difference in the amount of muscle fibers on their muscles, on their skeletal muscles? It, yes, they have a huge difference in response to the stimuli that they've exposed their bodies to and asked their body to adapt to. The same is true with mitochondria. Mitochondria are not just environmental sensors, but they are, because they are also these energy generators, they are tasked very directly in responding to stress and threats. So take exercise, for example, this is an easy one to think about. If you're asking your body to respond to exercise, the mitochondria have to ramp up their energy utilization, you know, mainly of carbs and fats and energy production in order to meet the demand that is being placed on them to do the physical work, to generate that energy. So you can perform that activity. So again, they're, they're being tasked very directly in responding to stressors. Okay. So keep that in mind. Now, what happens if you exceed their capacity? Well, this is something I call the resilience threshold. It's basically how much stress can your mitochondria handle? How much, what is their capacity for, for handling stress and for generating energy to meet the demands that's being placed on them? Okay, that's your resilience threshold and it directly ties into the physical size and amount of mitochondria you have in your cells. Now, getting back to this question of how many mitochondria we have in our cells, I said 500 to 2000. However, that differs dramatically between individuals. And it is possible to have more like 500 and it's possible to have more like 2000. And to be more specific, it's been shown that on average, people lose about 10% of their mitochondrial capacity with it each decade of life. That might not sound like that much, but to state it more directly, it's been shown that in the typical 70-year-old, they only have about 25% of the mitochondrial capacity they had when they were young. In other words, they have lost 75% of their mitochondrial energy production capacity as they've aged. To be more specific, what's happening there, it's been shown that they lose about 50% of the mitochondria themselves. So the actual number of mitochondria that are present declines by about 50%. And the energy production capacity of those individual mitochondria that are left is cut in half by about 50%. So you do the math on that, you've, you've reduced your, your energy generation capacity at the cellular level by 75%. This is like going from a Ferrari engine to a two-stroke moped engine in your cells. 
And how does that tie into your question? Well, it very directly means that the person with the very small engine in their cells has a way, way lower capacity to handle demands, stress, energetic demands, metabolic demands that are being placed on that system than the, the person with a Ferrari engine in their cells. Now, the other aspect of this, pe people might be thinking, you know, wow, that, that, that really is crappy news that we lose so much of our mitochondrial capacity as we age. Well, the good news is this, you actually don't have to. And it's been shown that in 70-year-olds who are lifelong athletes and exercisers, they have the same mitochondrial capacity as a young adult. They don't lose 75% of their mitochondrial capacity. So what that tells us is that this loss of mitochondria is not a natural byproduct of the aging process itself but is a result of modern lifestyles, specifically lack of hormetic stress that drives this loss of mitochondria in very much the same way that if you've ever broken a bone, like an arm or a leg, you get a cast on, and then you wear that cast for eight weeks, you get the cast sewn off your leg eight weeks later, and you look down at your legs and you see that one leg is half the size of the other one. Why is that? It's because the body is ruthless about getting rid of energetically costly tissue that isn't needed for survival. So as soon as you get that cast on, within literally days, within weeks, the body is, is immediately going, well, I guess we don't need that energetically costly tissue anymore to survive the demands that are being placed on us. Let's get rid of it. It's only a hindrance to our survival. Let's, let's drop it. And the body does the same exact thing with mitochondria. If you're not stimulating them and challenging them, they atrophy, they shrink, they shrivel, they become weak. And if you can picture what I just described happening with your muscles in just a matter of eight weeks, imagine what happens to your mitochondria over 50 years of not challenging them adequately. Wow. Okay. I have some questions about that. But before that, one other question about the mitochondria. Is there a genetic or an inherited component to how well they're set up to function. And since we inherit them from our mother, are our vitality levels probably more reflective of our mother than our father? It's a really good question. And I actually don't know the answer to it. I don't know if anybody does. There, there might be somebody who's like a mitochondrial researcher who's really looked at the mitochondrial DNA piece. And what, what you said is true, that we get that mitochondrial DNA from our mothers specifically, not our fathers. I would venture to guess that there is almost certainly something to what you're saying. I mean, how could there not be? But I don't know of any specific research that's really examined that where I could tell you anything, any sort of uh, specifics about, you know, what we know about that topic. But it's a, it's a great question. You know, the studies like the inherited stress factors, and they say that stress travels through generations, you know, a certain amount of generations. Do you know if that's related to the mitochondria or is that something else in the epigenome? I know that there's a neurological component to it in terms of how the brain gets wired. Certainly it's related to the epigenome, but mitochondria also tie very directly into, into the epigenetics as well. I don't know that I've ever encountered something specifically on mitochondria as it relates to that, but 
Yeah, and another great question that I would say I, I don't know if anybody knows the answer to, and and I certainly don't. I'll keep it on my list to be to be looking for it. Speaking about these hormetic stressors and these things which challenge our mitochondria, you mentioned exercise. I'm assuming you, you talk all throughout the book about these different supplements and compounds. I'm assuming red light therapy. Is there one that is stronger, like the creme de la creme of stimulating mitochondria biogenesis? Is it exercise or is it all the things? Yeah, there's, so exercise certainly is a big one. However, in people with severe chronic fatigue, exercise tends to be a bad place to start because it's so energetically demanding compared to other types of hormetic stress. So to give a breakdown of some of these types of hormetic stress, that stimulate mitochondria, that challenge them and stimulate them to adapt very much like lifting a heavy weight that's challenging for your muscles, stim creates this challenge, this stress that stimulates your body to respond to it by saying, hey, we, we need to adapt to the demands that are being placed on us by growing stronger in this area to, to handle this. So the mitochondria do the same thing. And there are different types of hormetic stress that do that at the mitochondria level. And they all have sort of their own unique fingerprint of specific adaptations that they stimulate. Some are more energetically demanding than others, but some of them are exercise, first of all, and there's different subtypes of exercise, resistance training, steady state endurance training or cardio, high intensity interval training and sprint interval training. There's hypoxic practices, breath hold practices or altitude, things like that. There is heat and cold thermal stress. So things like ice baths and saunas, there's light hormetic stress from ultraviolet light from red and near infrared light. There's also fasting and, and there's certain kinds of chemicals that provide hormetic stress, things like methylene blue, for example. And there's also phytochemicals that are in a category called xenohormetic stressors or xenohormetans. And they stimulate a lot of the same pathways involved here. Now, if you if you just if you think about you know how sort of energetically demanding it is to consume a phytochemical versus doing a 30-minute workout, the phytochemical is a lot gentler. Now, I'm not saying they have equivalent effects, but I am saying that starting with gentler hormetic stressors that don't create such a huge energetic demand is a better place to go for people who are chronically ill or chronically fatigued. I find sauna and breath-holding practices to be the most powerful place to start for people with chronic fatigue. Now, another aspect to consider here is that th th they do have somewhat unique effects. They may not all stimulate, and they almost certainly, I should say more strongly, they do not all stimulate the same degree of mitochondrial growth and biogenesis as one another. So there's for sure differences in that. There's even differences among different types of exercise. And I would say this is the only research that is, that's possible to speak of to answer that question where they've actually tested different types of hormetic stressors in terms of the, the degree of mitochondrial biogenesis stimulation. Mitochondrial biogenesis for people listening is the, the creation of new mitochondria from scratch. So actually growing more mitochondria, rebuilding from let's say 
500 mitochondria per cell to 1,000. It's possible to do through mitochondrial biogenesis by using hormetic stress. Now, in this paper, which was done, I believe it was a thesis paper done by a PhD, PhD student uh, somewhere in Europe, I think in a Scandinavian country. I think the guy's name was Nicholas Sylander. I think it was PSI Lander. They looked at a number of studies. They performed a number of studies where they tested different types of exercise in different groups of people. And there, there was a mix of, I think, five studies or six studies, but they looked at steady state endurance training versus weight training versus high intensity interval training versus, and, and sprint interval training. And they also looked at these, some of these different types of exercise in either untrained or trained individuals. So either taking people who have, who are not exercisers or taking people who are regular exercisers of various types that also will influence the results. And they also did some modification of the state that one was in. Are you in a fed state or a fasted state doing these exercises? And there was a number of findings, one of which was, for example, they found that doing uh, sprint interval training in a fasted state was more effective than a fed state in stimulating mitochondrial biogenesis. They found that in people who are untrained, doing really any type of exercise will stimulate plenty of mitochondrial biogenesis. But the more trained you become, the more you need to, this is a bit of my own extrapolation, but the more you need to do something different compared to something novel, novel stimulus on your body, novel challenge compared to what you are used to, what your body's used to. And I would say, you know, the other sort of key finding from this research was that in trained people and people who were already trained, uh, I believe they tested endurance athletes and maybe also weight training people who were doing resistance exercise they found that sprint interval training was highly effective in inducing mitochondrial biogenesis more so than doing steady state interval or steady state cardio or resistance exercise was in those already trained people. So that's a very sort of brief overview off the top of my head from a paper that I haven't looked at in a couple of years. Hi friends. So I'm sort of haunted by clothes. If you follow me on Instagram, you probably know that I love wearing all the new clothes all the time. And I know that that is not really sustainable and not good for the planet. That's why I am thrilled that there is now a way to get all of the clothes with none of the waste. And I'm going to tell you how you can get unlimited clothes with no waste for a month for free. That's right, I now have a website for both myself and you guys where you can get free unlimited clothes with free shipping, free exchanges, nonstop from all of the hottest brands, and it is so incredibly easy. It's called MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com. We have so many incredible brands, including my favorites like BCBG, Calvin Klein, and so many more. Think like a hundred brands. There are so many options. And the way it works is when you get a subscription, you search through the clothes, pick what you want. They send it to you with fast, easy shipping. You wear it as long as you want. And then when you're ready for more clothes, you just drop it off in their prepackaged envelope and get your next round. It is so incredibly cool. They have multiple plans. The starter plan gives you two pieces at a time. Friends, I actually have a little secret hack. Don't tell them that I told you this. When you get your two pieces, you can actually 
immediately go into your account, click return, and they'll go ahead and send you the next two pieces. So technically you can have four pieces at a time. You also have a cool virtual closet that you can keep stocked with everything you eventually want to order so you never miss out. And if you really like something and want to keep it, you can opt to buy it at a massively discounted price. Friends, I'm obsessed. This is finally the answer to wearing all the clothes, all the time, with none of the waste. Oh, and of course, one of my major reservations was the cleaning compounds that they use on the clothes because yes, it is dry cleaning, which normally makes me nervous. And they don't say this on the website. So I reached out to them and I was like, hey, what's going on with the cleaning? What do you guys use? Because I can't promote this if it's just normal dry cleaning. And thankfully, they let me know that they do not use any detergents, fabric softeners, or chemicals that are harsh. Everything is professionally dry cleaned or laundered with detergents that are free from dyes and scents. It's all gentle and it uses low temperature cycles. So yes, we are good on that front as well. It is the coolest thing ever. And you can try it free for a month. Yes, completely free. Just go to melanieavalonscloset.com to sign up. Free clothes for a month. After that, their plans are super affordable. We're talking honestly, an entire month is less than the cost of typically what would be the cost of one dress. And I am not kidding. That's right. Unlimited clothes for less than the cost of one outfit. I'm just so thrilled to bring this resource to you guys. I can't wait to hear what you guys think. So again, get free unlimited clothes for a month at melanieavalonscloset.com. That's melanieavalonscloset.com for all of the clothes, none of the waste. And definitely share your pictures and tag me on Instagram because I want to see all the fabulous things that you guys are wearing. That's melanieavalonscloset.com. No, it's super helpful. And I'm just thinking about how so many of the daily habits I do are unified by this mitochondria concept. Like I I do a cryotherapy session typically every day, infrared sauna, red light. I do fasting every day. The exercise piece is the piece I don't have like a concentrated exercise routine, but I feel like I should probably be integrating interval training into it. Another question about this, what role does the perception play? So for example, even with exercise, or I guess stepping back actually a little bit before that, do the mitochondria just react and do all of this on a cellular level? Or is there also a neurological perception piece to every single hermetic stress? So like if you're exercising and you are think you're doing it better or you embrace it? Like, does that have a a better effect than if you don't? And with psychological stressors, if you see them as building resilience versus not, what role does the conscious mind play in all of this? Yeah, I have to say you you asked some of the best questions that I've ever had from an interviewer. So bravo on that. This is another really excellent question. And yes, there there is an effect there. I don't know that any study has has quantified it exactly at the at the mitochondrial level i'm going to step back for a second i mentioned a study before about how psychological stress was shown to induce leakage of mitochondrial dna into the bloodstream and this is from a field of research called mitochondrial psychobiology looking at the link between the mind and mitochondria this particular study they it's kind of a, a funny design. They they basically ask people to get on stage and do public speaking 
and you know, people have a tremendous fear of public speaking. Most people fear it more than they fear death. And in addition to having them get on stage and do public speaking, they had hecklers in the crowd basically shouting, you know, profanities or personal insults and attacks and, and booze. And, you know, it was all simulated, but they subjected people to this, to this state of psychological stress. And they showed leakage of mitochondrial DNA within a matter of minutes. But you can also imagine that if somebody wasn't particularly stressed by that, let's say they thought it was fun, or let's say they were used to public speaking, or they're a stand-up comedian and it's no big deal for them, they, they've done it thousands of times, it doesn't, doesn't even change their heart rate to get up on stage in front of people, you, you can imagine that their physiological response is going to be considerably different. And if they don't have this intense surge of all these stress hormones and this intense stress reaction, they probably wouldn't have a leakage of mitochondrial DNA in the bloodstream. So, you know, extrapolating from, from that kind of thinking, we can certainly deduce that one's perceptions greatly change this. Now on a, on a day-to-day level, it's also the case that, you know, just in our daily lives, in our daily lives, certain things which might be stressful to one person might not stress another person. And, you know, or the same event from day to day might stress you or not stress you. And so perception matters, of course, in a big way, whether you're getting into a stress response or not has very real physiological effects. And we even know that from this field of mitochondrial psychobiology, it ties, the mind ties into the mitochondria within a matter of seconds. So yes, is the answer, certainly. Now, the other layer to this is that the attitude that you're bringing into hormetic stress is really, it's a golden opportunity to do something very profound at the physiological level and at the level of, of what's going on in your mind. Because what you're doing is you're self-imposing stress in this particular case. You are choosing voluntarily to subject yourself to a physiological stressor as compared with just, you know, you're going about your, your daily life and somebody cuts you off or, you know, your boss is giving you crap or, you know, just the happenstance of life. In this case, we are deliberately, intentionally, voluntarily subjecting ourselves to this type of physiological stressor in a, in a controlled and systematic way. And what happens if you let's let's use the uh, the ice bu- ice tub as an example of this? What happens if you go in that ice bath and you are going in and you're going, I hate this. Oh my gosh, it's so cold. It's so uncomfortable. Oh my god. Oh, why am I doing this? Versus if you're breathing, if you center your mind, if you calm yourself down, you get in the tub, put yourself into a peaceful place. Are those two things different physiologically? Yeah, absolutely. So what you're doing when you're doing that is actually creating, you're deliberately exposing yourself to the physiological stress while also controlling your mind state. And what you can essentially do as a result of this is you can self-inoculate yourself against stress and you can train yourself to be calm and resilient in the state of physiological stress so that you're, you're disconnecting the hormonal stress response from certain reactions that you have to it. So in other words, 
we all are responding reflectively to discomfort, to pain, to stress in this way, this, this type of metabolic stress, whether it's exercising and feeling this intense burn in your muscles and being fatigued, or whether it's the intense heat and discomfort of the sauna, or whether it's the pain and discomfort of an ice tub, the, you get a, a, a strong response of stress hormones, adrenaline, norepinephrine, cortisol, things like that. And then, and then in response to that, that creates certain psychological effects where we have reactions to get out, get ourselves out of that situation. Our heart rate speeds up. We want to, we want, we're, we're annoyed. We're angry. We're unhappy. We're uncomfortable. We want to move away from this painful stimulus. And what you're doing is you're calming all of that energy down and training yourself to be able to physiologically experience the hormonal state of stress, that stress physiology, and disconnect it from that reflexive mind response. You're, you're again, self-inoculating yourself against stress. You're training yourself to be resilient under stress. I'm glad you talked about just how fast that DNA leakage can occur. I'm super curious, all of these effects on the mitochondria, like what is the lifespan of a mitochondria and how fast does it turn over? And when we're doing these things, how fast can we make new mitochondria? And you talk about in the book, when we go to sleep, we have mitophagy and we make new mitochondria. Do we replace all of our mitochondria? Like, so he's kind of like, you, you know how they say that every seven years, you're an entire new body. How long would it take for you to have entire new mitochondria? <laughs> Another question I don't know if anybody knows the answer to. I think that mitochondria, like very much like cells, well, actually, let me step back. This is a better place to start in answering your question. The idea that our body replaces itself every seven years and we have all new cells every seven years is actually a myth. It's not true. I thought you were going to say that. <laughs> Mythbuster. <laughs> so uh, the truth is we have cells that replace themselves every few days and we have other cells that I believe are thought to live a lifetime in, in the brain that I think stick around for decades. And someone can... The, the, the answer to this particular question, I'm going a bit off the top of my head about things I've heard and read over the years. So I'm, none of this is top of mind as far as like looking at actual research on this. But my general understanding of, of physiology is that some cells replace themselves every few days, for example, like gut, gut cells in the inner lining of the gut. Other cells like neurons in the brain can last decades, can live decades, if not our whole life. So and then there's many other types of cells that are somewhere in between that. So yeah, it's a myth that our bodies replace itself every seven years. Mitochondria probably have something similar going on. There's probably mitochondria that are much more dynamic than others, depending on the specific cells and tissues that they're in. They've got a lot more going on in terms of, and it's not so much replacing themselves. It's more like what's called fission and fusion. And mitophagy and, and mitochondrial biogenesis. All of these are sort of dynamic processes that are constantly reshaping our mitochondria and our cells. So we, we have processes that are involved in stimulating mitochondrial growth. We have processes that are involved in stimulating mitochondria to divide and then create more mitochondria. We have processes that stimulate separate mitochondria to combine and form bigger mitochondria, fusion. And we have processes that are cleanup processes like mitophagy that are 
quality control processes to identify chunks of mitochondria or entire mitochondria that are dysfunctional, that are unhealthy, and then to either break off that chunk where, let's say, the membrane of that particular mitochondria on the left side of it has become damaged and depolarized. And so break off that chunk and do this fission and then basically send the dysfunctional part over to a lysosome for degradation and breakdown. So we're cleaning up that mitochondria, only leaving the healthy part there and getting rid of the, the unhealthy dysfunctional part. So it's, it's not quite as simple of a question as saying like, how often are mitochondria replacing themselves or creating new ones? There's, there's a constant daily dynamism as far as all of these growth and fusion and fission and mitophagy processes. So I, I think that question is probably impossible to answer, but it's better to think of it in terms of it's, it's always shifting and dynamic. Fueling all of these processes. So creating these new mitochondria and doing all those cleanup processes and all of that, your book is called Eat for Energy. So what is the role in nutrition for fueling all of this? Oh, that's a big topic. I just wrote 300 plus pages on that. I know. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I know. Listeners, listeners get the book. It's all in there. <laughs> The way I break it down in the book, and I'll give kind of an overview here and we can dive into specific aspects of this. In terms of how nutrition ties into this story of mitochondrial function, there, there's multiple different mechanisms of how nutrition relates to mitochondrial health, mitochondrial growth, mitochondrial function, or mitochondrial harm and mitochondrial shutdown. So in, in the book, I break it down in terms of, you know, Chapter one is explaining all these things I talked about here about how mitochondria work and how they energy production and cellular defense are two sides of the same coin to the extent they're doing one, they're not doing the other. Okay. From there, chapter two is on circadian rhythm. So circadian, our circadian rhythms, we've got a central clock in the brain that's primarily responsive to light inputs. And we've got peripheral clocks. This is a newer scientific discovery. We've got peripheral clocks throughout the tissues of our body that are primarily responsive to food inputs. And the, the circadian rhythm then impacts upon mitochondrial function in, in many different ways, which we can talk about if you want to dive into that one. And then the next chapter is all about body composition. So how having too little muscle and especially excess body fat ties into mitochondrial function. The next one is all about blood glucose control. So how hypoglycemia and, and hyperglycemia, high blood sugar, causes mitochondrial dysfunction and shutdown. The next chapter is all about gut health. The next one's all about brain health. And there, there are multiple mechanisms going on at those levels as well, how those tie into mitochondrial function. And then the final two chapters of the book are on energy superfoods and supplements that enhance mitochondrial function. So I think in the interest of time, what I might do is there's just so much content and there's so much information and listeners just have got to get the book. Would you be okay if I just ask you some like just random questions I have from all of this? <laughs> this is just things I'm just dying to ask you. So, well, this is a big question, which probably doesn't have a simple answer. And I know that you have opinions about this. There's so much debate about low-carb diets, ketogenic diets, low-fat, high-carb diets. So if you're in a ketogenic state or not, 
what are your thoughts on that and its role with the mitochondria and glucose burning versus not? Yeah, I, I guess my my way of answering that question is, well, let me let me say this. I, I think that there's been a lot made of this topic that isn't grounded in good scientific evidence. There's been really like this whole kind of ideology and and philosophy and almost like dietary religion and cult that's been made out of some of these ideas and theories about, you know, the differences and how our cells or our mitochondria process carbs versus fats and ketones. And my, my biggest gripe with it is that most of the claims, the original claims that the low carb and keto camps were founded upon have turned out to be not true. There's a, there's a lot of aspects to this, but the, the, I'll give you a couple examples. One is like the idea that all of our hunter gatherer ancestors, human ancestors, ate low carb diets or ketogenic diets uh, and, and that fats or, or ketones are our body's preferred fuel source. These things are, are just plain wrong. We can look at lots of analysis of ancestral human diets. There's been studies by, for example, uh, Stefan Lindeberg, who wrote a textbook around his travels around the world decades ago to go see many of these hunter-gatherer tribes that still exist in the world today. None of them eat ketogenic diets. Many of them eat diets that are 50, 60, 70, even 90% carbohydrate. So that aspect of it is false. The other aspect that these things are our preferred fuel source is also false. When the body has carbohydrates, it preferentially burns carbohydrates in virtually all tissues of the body. And it, so it's, it's just simply a distortion to claim that the body is preferring fats or ketones. It, it, it clearly isn't. If it has carbohydrates available, it uses them preferentially over fats and ketones. Even the, the Inuit are not on a ketogenic diet. You know, and they live in a place where almost no plant foods grow. And they, number one, they go to great lengths to obtain the, the few plant foods like berries that, that are available to them. And when they eat fresh meat, they get, actually get enough carbohydrates in the form of glycogen in the form of the fresh meat that's stored in that muscle tissue to keep them out of ketogenesis. So, and then I'll just as maybe one other layer, let's do two other layers to this. One is the idea that you know, it was kind of promoted for many years that if you were running on fats for fuel, that you'd have just amazing energy levels and you, you have amazing endurance and sp your sports performance would be vastly superior. And, and, and those things have been tested. You know, we've tested people on low carb and ketogenic diets versus higher carb diets in various kinds of athletic performance. And the claims have not held up at all. And in, in fact, best case scenario in steady state endurance racing, like let's say running a marathon, people who are running on fat can perform as well as people who are running on carbohydrates. But the higher the performance, the higher the intensity, the activity, the more that carb having carbohydrates in your diet provides an athletic performance advantage. And then, you know, certain specific studies like Finney and Volick are researchers that popularized were sort of instrumental in popularizing low carb ketogenic diets. And there's some distortion in, in what they did. I don't remember the exact name of the study, but it was a, a specific study, I think, in, that they did in cyclists where they put people on this low carb ketogenic diet 
and they showed on average it improved performance in the low carb ketogenic group relative to the higher carb group. But when you actually dug into the specifics of the data, what you found was that I forget the number of participants they had, maybe 16 or 20 or something like, like that participants, almost all of the participants with the exception of one or two in the low carb ketogenic group had declines in their performance. And then one or two specific individuals had these massive improvements in their performance that were unlike the other 90% of individuals. And when you average out the numbers, the magnitude of the effect for that one person who had this enormous improvement was enough to pull the average of the entire group slightly ahead of the, the carbohydrate group. And so you could make a claim based on that sort of statistics that, oh, the, the low carb group performed better. But in fact, 19 of the 20 people in the low carb group performed worse. But, you know, you can do these kinds of misleading statistical calculations to make whatever claim you want to make. So, you know, there's a lot of stuff like that that's gone on. And then the last thing I'll say is the, probably the biggest thing is, you know, the, the, the bulk of it was founded around the idea that around the, the carbohydrate hypothesis of, of obesity, which is basically the idea that insulin is a fat storing hormone and insulin is the thing that's regulating body fatness and carbs cause you to produce more insulin. Therefore carbs cause you to gain fat. And if you just lower your carbs, then you lower your insulin and therefore you lose fat. And this is logical enough. And I actually ad adhered and promoted that diet for, for many years until it was tested until I discovered research back in 2013, thanks to the work of obesity researcher, uh, Stefan Guionet, who was writing about that topic back then. And he educated me <laughs> like on, on the actual research that tested that and showed, which showed that I was wrong. And that body of evidence has continued to accumulate over the last decade, continuing to show the same thing. And basically what it shows is that while insulin is one of many things that are required for fat gain, it is not the thing that regulates body fatness. So in very much the same way as the analogy I gave before, the spark plug or the piston or the catalytic converter is not the thing that regulates whether the car goes down the street, but it is one part of the overall car that allows it to function. And Basically, what this body of research shows, and, and it's, it's most directly tested in what's called metabolic ward studies, where they give people the same amount of calories in each group, but different macronutrient ratios. So you give people, let's say, a 70% carbohydrate diet, and that's 5% fat versus a 70% fat diet that's 5% carbohydrate, but they both have the exact same number of calories. You can show that there are dramatic differences in the amount of insulin being produced, but if you measure them several weeks later, you show no, no discernible difference in body fat whatsoever. They have the exact, the exact same levels of body fat that you can do the experiments in reverse too, in overfeeding studies, feed people a high carb versus a low carb, high fat diet, overfeeding them, asking them to gain fat. Does the, the group eating carbs gain more fat? No, they gain the same amount. So these studies have been done ad nauseum. They've even been done by Gary Tobbs's Institute themselves, which collected many, many millions of dollars to fund research with the intention to prove 
his carbohydrate hypothesis of obesity and what they actually found in the studies by Kevin Hall funded by Nusi was that it disproved the hypothesis. So anyway, I could, I could go on. There's also other aspects of that fat gain and fat loss discussion, but the, the, the short version of it is that pretty much all of the central claims about the superiority of low carb and ketogenic diets in terms of fat loss and athletic performance and it being our ancestral fuel and all these kinds of things are just simply wrong. And they've, there's lots of evidence showing that they're wrong. None of that means that low carb or ketogenic diets are bad. I'm not saying they're bad or that you should avoid them. In fact, I think that it's a, a smart idea to at least cyclically go into low carb diets. Just like I think it's if you're on a low carb ketogenic diet, I think it's cyclically a good idea to go off of it, but it, it's, it's one way of doing things that has certain advantages for certain demographics, maybe diabetics, obese diabetics in particular, but many of the central claims are not, not are distortions that are refuted by the scientific evidence. Hi friends. One of the most valuable things that I do every single night of my life is my infrared sauna session. The brand that I use is Sunlighten. I did a lot of research on infrared saunas before deciding on them. Their saunas are so high quality. They're low EMF. And what I really love is they have a solo unit. That's what I have. And it's really great if you live in a small apartment, might be moving. It's just really an amazing investment. And they have incredible deals and offers on it right now. You can actually get up to $200 off with the code Melanie Avalon. Or if you're talking to a rep, just tell them that I sent you. And like I said, that will be up to $200 off and that will also get you $99 shipping. Normally the shipping is like $600. So that's a really, really big deal. And if you do purchase a sauna, forward your proof of purchase to podcast at melanieavalon.com. And I will also send you a signed copy of my book, What, When, Why. If you'd like to learn more about the science of sauna, Two resources. I interviewed the founder of Sunlighten, Connie Zach. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. And then I also recently did an epic blog post all about the science of sauna. We'll also put that in the show notes. All right, now back to the show. Yeah, it's definitely an ongoing age old, it seems, debate at this point. And I think my perspective on it now, because I as well was very steeped in the low carb keto world for a bit. And now I have a slightly different perspective and I actually eat a really high carb diet, but it seems like I agree that when it's in controlled, like calorie controlled metabolic word type study, that they seem to be the same with their effects. I just wonder if the real world applications, if some people just respond better to one versus the other. And even like in that study you talked about where the data was misleading because they averaged together the numbers. So it's like, even in that study, the two people who did really great on the, the low carb. So are they just more suited in their life to follow that type of lifestyle? Yeah. Well, in that particular study, the most likely explanation was that it was an anomaly. Maybe the guy, the, the first time the guy tested, he was sick or something like that, or just had a horrible day or had terrible sleep deprivation the night before. And so had a horrible performance. And then the next time he tested, he performed much better. He was in a better place or whatever. There's also something called, I forget the, the term, but it, it's, it's basically like test retest improvements. So once you already have some familiarity with the test, the second time you do it, you perform a lot better. And there also can be individual variation in that kind of thing. But to your point, yeah, it's almost certainly the case that certain individuals do respond better 
to one way of doing things over another, whether it's exercise or whether it's diet. So yeah, I would say there's certainly truth in what you're saying. And it is very likely that certain individuals would find a particular way of doing things. Like, I mean, I know people that, you know, I've had some clients over the years who have done a vegan diet with enormous success, despite the fact that I've advised them not to do a, a purely vegan diet, but they're doing awesome on it. I've had other people that have gone low carb keto and are doing amazing. And they find that when they eat a vegan diet or a high carb diet, they don't do nearly as well. They feel tired or they have trouble with their blood sugar regulation, or they have trouble managing their appetite. They're much more prone to overeating. So for sure, those individual variations exist. I don't want to misattribute something to Kevin Hall. Like there was one review that was really expansive and looking at all of these low carb versus low fat studies. And the conclusion was that they're basically identical. But then if you look at the actual breakdown of the data, it seemed like it was really heterogeneous. Like sort of, it was sort of like an average uh, situation. I think, and I'm glad you brought this up because I I meant to mention it earlier, but there have been several meta-analyses of different dietary approaches, low-carb versus low-fat diets, as well as even like named diets like Atkins versus Ornish versus The Zone versus South Beach and things like that. And those generally conclude that the differences between those weight loss outcomes are very minor despite very big differences in macronutrient ratios between the diets, emphasizing my point that the hype around carbs and fats of the diets has largely been way over-exaggerated in, in terms of its importance. But the, the one that I think you're referring to is a 2018 study called Diet Fits, I believe. And it was a really groundbreaking study because it's by far the best study on the low carb, high fat stuff that's ever been done for a number of reasons. It involved a huge number of participants for an unprecedented length of time in a randomized controlled study. So normally those kinds of studies, because they're so expensive to, to do, they, they last maybe, you know, three weeks, six weeks, eight weeks, 12 weeks, 16 weeks. This one was a year long And it was also remarkable in the number of participants, I think over 6,000 participants that they had in this study. And it was also remarkable in the sense that they actually gave good dietary advice, (laughs) which unlike a lot of the studies, which just kind of prescribe, you know, kind of crappy diets or, or just prescribe macronutrient ratios without much focus on dietary quality, or they don't match for protein, which is another huge confounding variable, which is the main reason why certain studies show low carb diets are superior. It's because they're higher in protein and they didn't control for that variable. But the, this study gave good dietary advice in the sense that they advised people to eat whole unprocessed foods for the most part, whether they were in the low carb or low fat group. And, and they, I think they maybe also came close to matching for protein intake as well. And so, you know, at the end of 12 months, basically they showed that there was no significant difference between weight loss outcomes on low carb versus low fat diets, which is very consistent with the overall body of evidence. However, to your point, I think there was significant heterogeneity in the in, in terms of the individuals, and some did indeed lose more weight on either the low-carb or low-fat diets. 
might be a bit of individuality, but there's definitely a lot of myth busting that needs to happen. So I'm glad we're having this conversation. Okay. Just some random rapid fire questions. So listeners, like I mentioned, and eat for energy, there's in every chapter, there's all of these compounds and nutrients and supplements that can affect all of these different factors. And I'm curious, because you do talk about a lot of individual nutrients. Do you have thoughts on nutrients from whole foods form versus supplements versus like IVs or injections, for example. Like I go to a place called Restore where they have a lot of intramuscular injections that I like to get. Do you know if those are more beneficial for getting things? They'll have like CoQ10 and carnitine and things like that. To be honest, I wouldn't mess with it. Really? Yeah. And if you try to look at the research, you'll find that there's almost no research on it. Now, and you know, for me, as a general principle, and I know there's maybe going to be some like naturopaths and, and, and other doctors who do that kind of work that might object to what I'm going to say. And they, 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 they are really fans of that. So that's fine. But as of right now, the body of evidence on it is really extremely unimpressive. There's really no compelling research on it. And as a general principle, if you're going to break the surface of my skin barrier, there better be a compelling reason for doing that. This is IVs and injections? Yes, I would say in general. Now, and maybe an exception is B12. And the, the, the distinction here is bioavailability. If, if something has poor bio, bioavailability orally, there is good reason to inject it. And however, if you don't have that problem with oral bioavailability, I would argue you should not play around with directly injecting it because now you're introducing it into the body in an unnatural way. The way it's designed to enter is orally, whether we're talking, you know, acetyl, we're talking carnitine, for example, or uh, lipoic acid or something like that. So yeah, I, I don't think until there's compelling data showing that injected or IV, you know, glutathione and CoQ10 and other B vitamins and things like that, with the exception of B12, have some kind of benefit above and beyond what can be got from oral. I, I wouldn't mess with anything that does injection or IV. That's my, my personal approach. Again, I know that there's going to be docs who do that work who disagree with me. No, that, that's fascinating. And on the flip side, you do seem to have a pretty favorable view on multivitamins, if they're the correct one, right? Am I putting words in your mouth? No, no, I'd say that's accurate. Yeah, multivitamins are a very mixed bag because there's a lot of cheap, crappy ones that are using synthetic forms of vitamins, non-optimal forms, for example, like D1 alpha tocopherol for vitamin E as instead of mixed tocopherols. And we have research showing actually harm from that. So there, there's good reason, I would say, to avoid a multivitamin supplement that is a yeah, cheap multivitamin supplement that's doing that kind of thing. Synthetic, non-optimal, non-methylated forms of B vitamins, ascorbic acid as opposed to natural sources of vitamin C makes a difference as well. Yeah, there, there's a number of, of things to be cautious about when it comes to multivitamins. But if you are getting a, a good one from a reputable company, and I make one, but there's other companies like Dirty Jeans. Oh, Ben Lynch. 
Yes. See, so his brand seeking health is excellent. He knows how to formulate great stuff. Um, Thorn makes a good multi multivitamin and mineral supplement. There's, there's a few other companies as well, but in definitely avoid cheap ones. And if you get a good quality one, yes, I do think that there is compelling evidence to suggest that it's associated with lower risk of various diseases, longer lifespan. And in the case of chronic fatigue, that it's been shown to create significant improvements in sleep quality and energy levels in the span of a few weeks. Wow. I'm so fascinated by it because I actually recently launched my own supplement line as well. And I've just always been so torn about the multivitamin concept. So it was interesting to read your thoughts on it. One more supplement question. I'll say that I, for actually many years, was opposed to them and didn't take them myself. What made you change your mind? Learning about why there's some negative data on it, because there is negative data on multivitamins, you know, and, and there's also negative data on a number of uh, individual vitamins like vitamin C and vitamin E and things like that not being associated with longer life. And in some cases, even creating elevated risk for, let's say, prostate cancer or something like that. And it's, it's almost always for the reason that I just talked about, that they're using non-optimal forms of the, these, these compounds. So when I learned that and I started to look at some of the, the evidence on you know, positive effects of these compounds and then how to mitigate the downsides by simply, you know, doing things like mixed tocopherols instead of D1 alpha natural sources of vitamin C as opposed to ascorbic acid and, you know, things of that nature, the, the optimal balance between these, these nutrients as well. For example, zinc and copper and, and some formulations, they don't have copper or they don't have adequate amounts of copper or if some formulas, they have iron and I wouldn't recommend using iron in the formula. So, you know, once you avoid issues like that, then I think it's a perfectly great idea to use them, particularly given how rampant nutrient deficiencies are. Well, that is definitely a paradigm shift for me. So thank you. I'm going to have to look into it even more. Something that blew my mind, it was, it's a supplement that I tried like years ago and I haven't heard about a lot recently, but is it true that PQQ is the most potent mitochondria biogenesis stimulator? Most likely. Yeah. As far as what's been studied, it's hard to say definitively because, you, you know, a lot of these things haven't been compared directly head in head-to-head -head trials under the exact same circumstances. But yeah, it's, it's widely regarded to be an extremely potent stimulator of mitochondrial biogenesis. I might have to make that in my line. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Ari. This has been absolutely amazing. I just can't thank you enough for your work and all that you're doing and can't recommend enough that listeners get your books. The last question I ask every single guest on this show, and it's just because I realize more and more each day how important mindset is, especially after everything that we talked about. So what is something that you're grateful for? I would say, you know, there's, there's so many things that I'm, I'm grateful for, you know, right now I'm actually in this beautiful house, this Airbnb that's oceanfront. So I'm staring out at the ocean on a beautiful sunny day and looking out at a surf spot and I'm, I love surfing. I love being in the ocean. So I'm hugely grateful for that. I'm grateful for the sun and all of the amazing benefits that it has on our physiology, something I've written a lot about and plan to write more about. And I'm 
enormously grateful for my children. I am my I have a five-year-old son and my daughter just turned three yesterday and we just had a, a beautiful party for her. And yeah, that's they they're really the joy of my life. So I would say above all, that's what I'm grateful for. I have to ask, happy late birthday to your daughter. Was it a themed party? <laughs> no, not really, but she does love unicorns. I love unicorns too. That's fabulous. Okay. <laughs> well, um, thank you so much, Ari. This has been absolutely amazing. I, I really, I can't wait for listeners to hear this. I love following your work. I look forward to your future work. Are you working on your next book? I am. Yeah. I'm going to hear from Hay House actually in the next few days, what their, their team's vote is for the topic of my next book, but it's looking like it's going to be on hormetic stress and mitochondria. Oh my goodness. Well, hopefully you can come back for that because that would be absolutely amazing. Yeah, I would love to. And I I have to compliment you. I think of all the I don't know how many hundreds, maybe I'm in the thousands of interviews at this point, but I would say you asked some of the best questions of any interviewer I've ever had. So well done on that. Thank you so much. That makes my that makes my week. I'm going to be so I'm going to be so happy. Well, thank you. This has been absolutely amazing. I wish you the very best of the rest of your day, and I will talk to you later. You too, Melanie. It was a pleasure. I look forward to the next one. Thanks, Ari. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. For more information, you can check out my book, What When Wine, Lose Weight and Feel Great with Paleo-Style Meals, Intermittent Fasting, and Wine, as well as my blog, MelanieAvalon.com. Feel free to contact me at podcast at MelanieAvalon.com. And always remember, you got this.